Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Village Global's Venture Stories. I'm here today joined by three very special guests, Max Mullen, founder of Instacart, Brandon Hill, founder of Vori, and Mike Dubow, general partner at Greylock. Brandon, Max, Mike, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. Thanks for having us. Hey, great to be here. Mike, of course, it's your third time, so congrats on the all-rare three-peat. You got the hat trick. (laughs) (laughs) You've been too kind uh, to keep having me back despite prior performances. (laughs) (laughs) Well, third third time's a charm. (laughs) Brandon, let, uh, by way of introduction, uh, let, let's start with, with, with you. So uh, we're all investors in, in Vori. Why don't you describe for the audience what is Vori and uh, what's the story behind how you came to start it? Sure. Vori is a marketplace that uh, empowers food retailers. So if you think you know, independent grocery stores, you know, ethnic markets, pharmacies to make it really easy to order replenish and discover products that, you know, nourish their communities. So right now, the problem that we're solving is, you know, in, the, in these smaller retail formats, they're using paper and pencil. Um, they're using fax machines. As Max puts it, you know, billions of dollars of food is transacted on pink, yellow, and blue sheets of matrix printer paper every year. And it's really painful. And so what we're doing is we're bringing modern technology to, uh, to bear to really just make it simple. Um, for these stores to restock their shelves, which is a wedge into a lot bigger problem, other bigger problems. And how we got into this space. So my parents actually have been in the grocery industry for, you know, about 40 years. Um, they're retired now, um, but, you know, they worked on the manufacturer side. So my, my dad was actually the first African-American employee at uh, Reynolds Aluminum Foil, which, you know, most people have in their kitchens if they're baking cookies or, you know, doing anything. And he rose to be their North American director of sales. And my mom was also a leader at, um, you know, Mondelez and Pines and um, some of those big manufacturers. So having that, that kind of grocery in the, in the blood, so to speak, what, what directionally led me to uh, me and my co-founders to Vori. And, and when was the moment, Brandon, when you had conviction that this is a really big idea or a series of moments? I think there's a few, but I, the biggest actually was just spending more time with my parents, right? I took, after my first startup, took a sabbatical, which I was working on with one of my current co-founders. And during that sabbatical, really spent time talking with my parents about their small business, right? So after they retired from these large manufacturers, they went into business as a husband and wife pair as brokers. And so their job was to find small chocolate manufacturers or, or, or cookie makers or trash bag or organic trash bag um, producers and connect them with grocery stores, essentially shadowing them and looking at their emails and talking to their customers. And they just had too much business to actually handle. And they're, you know, my dad is almost 80 now and they don't have that much energy. And so seeing how much money they were making and how much, how much of a pain point they were solving without any technology whatsoever made me think, wow, there has to be a massive opportunity here if we can bring technology to the to both sides or all sides of this market and do the connection more efficiently. So I think, I think that's really the, the, what really got my spark going. Uh, I want to, Max and Mike, I'm curious for your, your investment thesis on, on why, what excited you about Vori. Max, perhaps we'll, we'll start with you. Obviously, you, you had a lot of context on the space, uh, having co-founded Instacart. 
What, what got you excited about Vori? Yeah, well, over the years, we've integrated our technology with a lot of our grocery store partners. And what's become clear to me and, and, and um, I'm sure to Brandon is that a lot of grocers and a lot of suppliers have underinvested in technology over the years, not just on the consumer side in the sense that delivery is coming you know, coming about or grocery stores are coming online, but in their, you know, in the technology that runs their businesses. And so when I saw what Brandon was doing, and particularly when I heard the story, uh, personal story around his uh, family and their background in the industry, I thought, wow, here's someone who knows how to build software, is going to build software for an industry that needs more software, and is hopefully going to build software that's going to help companies like Instacart better integrate with more and more grocery stores. So I saw it as sort of a win-win. And, and, and Mike, you, you'd been looking at this at, at, at B2B marketplaces for a while, and you'd also been looking particularly at, at the food space for a while. T- talk about that, that journey a little bit and, and how, how you got to conviction on that there was white space here. Yeah, sure. Well, I think the first point just to note, get out of the way, is like, I mean, Brandon, at, at the seed stage, like so much of this is just based on meeting an exceptional founder who has a unique insight. And I think in B2B marketplaces, it, it's, it's even more important to back a founder who comes from the industry understands the nuances of it because you can't just like apply an idealistic, you know, here's what a marketplace should look like and go just attack, you know, an industry without knowing, you know, what the current state of affairs in the industry have been for, you know, one that operate has been operating largely the same way for for decades. And so I think Brandon had the unique combination of both seeing the future, but also understanding the history um, very well. And um, so that was like, you know, a really impressive part of spending time with Bori. But I think to take a step back, as Eric noted, you know, we we look at a lot of B2B marketplaces at Greylock. It's been, you know, one of my biggest focus areas. I think there's a there's a why now around B2B marketplaces that have become that has become, you know, even more pronounced over the last year or so, which is, you know, consumer expectations around purchasing and discovery on consumer marketplaces. I think like everyone right now is a buyer on Amazon and all these other consumer friendly experiences. And um and the um the typical buyer on the B2B side has come to expect that in their consumer life, but is just so far off from what they could do on the, on the, um, in their business life. And so, you know, Brandon, I remember the first time Brandon walked into our office at Greylock, you brought in like some of the paper catalogs of, of what, you know, these, these folks are using to sell. And it was just, if that's literally the way you're, you're buying and coming through kind of, you know, a 400 page document, very different than, you know, the typical search and discovery experience you come to expect on Amazon or some more. And so that's, that's one. I think the other, um, which has made, I think, the new wave of B2B marketplaces potentially more attractive and sustainable than kind of prior prior attempts over the years is, you know, just the um, the possibility of, of driving revenue from new kind of fintech streams. And so for industries where it might be difficult to get a significant uh, take rate on GMV flowing through a marketplace, now we're seeing many, many companies get into uh, you know, payments factoring or other, you know, other financial services to actually monetize and build a sustainable business that way, which is able to get investors over the hump of, you know, investing before, you know, uh, meaningful, I guess, take rate or, or revenue going through a marketplace. So, so that, that's kind of B2B marketplaces overall. I think two things that have become made them, you know, more attractive, but I think, you know, we're seeing them pop up across very big antiquated industries. I think grocery has been grocery and food has been one of the more exciting ones um, for a couple of reasons. I think one, these are very high frequent, high frequency, you know, markets. And so if you think about how often um, consumers are buying, buying groceries, I mean, on, on the B2B side, like the frequency of replenishment for stores 
you know, you might for a, for a specific category, you might be replenishing, you know, multiple times a week, if not per day. And so I think the buying and repurchase experience, I think um, it's just high frequency um, as well as like fragmentation. And so I think when you look at the food supplier space, I mean, this is very, very regional, very local. And while I think Cisco and us foods have, Brandon will be able to cite exactly, but like, you know, a lot of the market exists with kind of the medium and, and longer term of players. So that I would say there's a high degree of fragmentation, both in the demand and the supply side. I think the other piece and the final piece, um, I guess, as a, as a growth person that gets me excited, B2B marketplaces overall, but also I think with what, you know, what Vori is doing is when, you, when you're able to build tech that gets into the actual workflow on both sides here, there's an incentive for suppliers to be uploading their, you know, their demand list and, and, and buyers to be uploading their supplier list just to streamline existing workflows and, and, you know, reduce overhead, reduce inefficient, you know, headcount, et cetera. And so uh, when that dynamic starts to kick in in one of these marketplaces, they could, they could accelerate really quickly um, through this kind of cross-site referral loop. And so we could spend more time on that, but I think, you know, in when we met Vori, some of that dynamic was already starting to come into play when we spoke with the customers, and that made it pretty exciting to us. So, you know, while we're on it, why, why don't you actually uh, get into it a little bit? Uh, uh, unpack what you mean by that and, and why that's unique here. Sure. So, I guess at the, at the high level here, I mean, I think one of the reasons why uh, we like marketplaces overall, maybe more than just you know going and investing in in brands or even SaaS to an extent, is. Um, is typically growth should become easier versus more difficult, like with scale. And so investing in like uh, growth tactics that that could be super linear versus just linear, I think is something that I think we talked about this maybe on the podcast with Dan um, and David. And so I think um, in, in this specific case, what we're referring to is when a buyer, I think the loop works in both sides and Brandon will be able to go to more detail on, on boring in particular. But when you have... Um, a buyer who has been able to, who over the years has been buying from maybe a food supplier uh, in a very antiquated way, like, you know, calling someone on the phone, sending them a fax in many cases, and you have experienced ordering from a new modern, you know, delivery, uh, a new kind of mobile ordering app, which maybe consumers might take for granted is like, well, you know, there's plenty of apps that we all, we all order on, but in grocery, that can be very transformative. Um, you know, you are going to want to pull in other suppliers onto that as well. And when you're a grocery store, you're maybe dealing with, you know, tens, tens of suppliers in that store, maybe even hundreds in some cases. And, and just going and referring them onto the Vori network is a really powerful dynamic. So Vori doesn't need to employ like a big, you know, a big massive sales force to go out and, and, uh, and go and try to sell to these like suppliers directly. And so, so I think that's, you know, when you talk about, buyers going and referring suppliers on. I think, you know, there's, there's, when you have that dynamic happening organically, there's other tools and features you could be building to actually go and accelerate that. And so that loop also could work the other way around um, where you have suppliers who are incentivized to go and get more of the buyers ordering from them directly. So the suppliers don't need to employ just massive, um, again, big sales forces going and calling on like a long tail of grocery stores. This exists across different, you know, B2B verticals. Um, uh, there's a variety of industries that, you know, in lieu of having kind of modern, I guess, demand gen and modern, modern uh, demand facing tech will go and employ massive sales forces to go and call on like a longer tail of buyers and, uh, and groceries, no, no exception. And so I think in this case, and Brandon, you should speak more to the dynamic that you're actually seeing, but being able to use referrals instead of like big sales force, I think is, is pretty attractive for these models. By the way, 
hot tip for the founders listening. If you find an industry that's doing anything with fax machines, double click on that. There's probably some opportunities there to, to build some <laughs> software for them. Definitely would echo that. So, I mean, yeah, I can speak a little bit to the dynamics that we're, that we're kind of seeing, right? It's we are in a very relationship driven kind of industry. Now we'll go down to the grocery store down the street and, you know, they will have relationships with a hundred different suppliers and each of those hundred different wholesale suppliers will have 500 different grocery relationships. And so Tina knows Bob, but then Bob orders from Sally, right? And then and Sally delivers to Tom and it's all one big social graph in a way. Um, and it's really interesting to kind of lift the hood up and see this interesting this interesting matrix of relationships kind of unfold and then be able to build against it. And so, you know, today, just about 70% of our supply side acquisition and our demand side acquisition originates from a pre-existing relationship that's on board, right? Um, in the beginning, it was not that case, right? We did a lot of things that didn't scale, which definitely would love to talk about. But, you know, we'll go to the market at Edgewood in Palo Alto, uh, one of our first customers and they placed an order. And one of those first orders that they replaced was to good stuff distribution. Um, and now good stuff distribution is a supplier on the Bori platform and helping us scale against their store list of 1500 different natural independence and natural independent stores and convenience stores and pharmacies across the Bay area. Right. And so it's a two-sided, two-sided thing that we get to take advantage of. And I think one of the difficulties is how do you take this industry that was, you know, super, super okay sending faxes and get them to use a modern consumer grade interface. Um, it does, there's a lot of unique challenges there, right? There's not a lot of whiz bang technology, you know, uh, baked into the platform right now, but I think a lot of the, the uh, special sauce comes in operationalizing a lot of the um, observed insights that we see. Hey, Brandon, one dynamic that I think would be interesting to talk about in this referral piece is, you know, what the incentives actually are. I mean, I think in consumer on the consumer side, when, you try to build out a referral program. Typically, there's some two-sided incentive, or or you know, monetary incentive, or incentive tied to you know units of value on a product like Dropbox. You know, the famous uh, getting free storage. Uh, I know in B two B marketplaces, I think Fair is a, a example of a referral program that has pulled some of those dynamics in that they're charging such a large take rate to the sell side that um, uh, sellers who, who upload their buyers to the, to the fair network are able to sell to them like fee-free for a while. And so that's basically they've waived like a whatever 15 or 20% like referral uh, take rate on that case. Like in Vori, part of what I think is, is really compelling here is I think the referral incentive is, is, you know, de minimis. It's really, there's just, it's streamlined workflow and the referrals basically the incentive to both sides is really just tied to like, you know, reduced overhead. Is that right? Or how, how do you think about the incentives, I guess, in, in making this referral loop like spin faster? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, th- I think what we found is that the, there is such a pain point to replenishment that solving that pain point alone is incentive to, for, you know, our various, our, our, our stores and our suppliers to bring in a, one another onto the platform. Um, we actually haven't done, we haven't ventured into paid um, acquisition or, or, you know, monetized incentives, and we will experiment with that. Um, but, you know, as it stands, you think about there's a, there's a current cost to every, every case of LaCroix that's sold from, you know, a distributor in South San Francisco to uh, in an independent grocer in, 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 you know, in Twin Peaks, San Francisco, right? There's a cost to the human element that is there, the sales rep that is baked into the price. There's a cost of 
the advertising and the flyers they had to print to let that store know that the LaCroix is now available. Um, there's a, a lot of things baked in. And what we do is we're able to reduce that to, you know, essentially zero, which now all of a sudden they're like, wait, this is this is a game changer. Right. And so then they're incentivized. The more of our the stores are like the more of our suppliers that we can get on here, the more um, the more time we have to discover new products and think strategically about our business. And the suppliers are saying, well, shoot, the more stores we can get to order through this, you know, the more lines of direct communication we have the more we can communicate real life inventory levels to these stores to know what is in stock and what's out of stock, you know, um, to let stores know that we have toilet paper, you know, um, and there's a natural incentive to kind of, uh, to get on the platform. I think those things will be accelerated when we kind of grease the wheels with like actually putting money behind, um, you know, uh, behind the, the, the distribution motions. And lest we forget about the end consumer here who, walks into the store and 10 to 15% of perishable items are out of stock at any given time. That hurts the store in two ways. First, they miss a sale. And secondly, I'm less likely to walk into that store the next time because the thing I wanted to buy was out of stock. So if you just solve that, solve that inefficiency between suppliers and stores, um, there's a huge upside for both of them. I think this is part of what makes now a really interesting time to invest in this space. I mean, the, um, I, initially got interested and I was looking at the topic of food waste as a problem. And I think Max brought up the example of stores being understocked. I think prior to all this and even, even during all this, I mean, I think if you look at certain perishable categories, um, was hearing data that some stores are throwing away like 20% of their stuff on a weekly basis, which is a, you know, I think food waste in the U S like 150 plus billion dollar problem. And it just feels like more intelligent procurement, uh, should be able to help solve that. And I think, you know, Instacart, Amazon, Vorit, like a, a number of players like play a role in that. Um, but I think now, you know, historically, and when we were calling like the heads of procurement and all these different grocers, like it's just an industry that has historically been really slow to adopt new technology. And when you have such a demand shock as, as we've seen during COVID and Brian, I brought up the toilet paper example, like it's a, it's a forcing function for these folks to you know, adopt new tech to actually get more intelligent because ultimately it's a profit maximization function uh, between over and understocking. And in a world where, you know, your margins are as razor thin as they are for grocery retail, I think it's, you know, now like getting intelligence on the buy is actually like a C-level issue and it's not being held up. At least I'm seeing it's not as held up in the red tape of like, you know, multiple levels of procurement hierarchy as it was maybe a year ago. So, Speaking of the space more broadly, Max, let's transition to, to you a little bit. Can, can you talk about what the sort, how the space was seen in 2012 when, when you started Instacart? You know, there were some high-profile failures in, in, in the decade and, and uh, prior. How, how did the space? Why don't you sort of trace the uh, the evolution of of how the space has 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 performed and has been viewed? Sure. Well, let's let's go all the way back to the beginning of the supermarket. You know, um, in 1916, the first supermarket opened in the U.S. It was called Piggly Wiggly. And what, what makes a supermarket a supermarket is that the consumers can touch the food and products themselves and put it in a cart and check out. Before that, you'd have different items behind different counters and, and you'd ask for help and someone would bring you something. So a self-service store where you can buy your groceries. Now, for many, many years, the, the grocery store didn't change too much. The products changed a lot and consumers' behavior and taste changed a lot. But the format of the grocery store largely is pretty similar. In, you know, around the year 2000, there were a few big companies that tried grocery delivery. You, you alluded to that. One of them was called Webvan and, and it failed. 
back then. And so fast forward to 2012, when we were going to start Instacart, that was something that was recent enough for uh, investors that we had to address it. And so I, I still remember our, our seed pitch, you know, included the line that there were some spectacular failures in grocery delivery in the past, but we are different, right? We don't hold inventory and we don't build warehouses and we don't own trucks. And we had to educate investors as to how we were different because we wanted them to know that we weren't going to fail in the way that those companies of the past did. The other thing to say about grocery delivery is that it wasn't so obvious in 2012 that it was going to be growing as fast as it is today. In fact, I would argue that as far back as three or four years ago, it wasn't as obvious that it would be this big today. And what you did have was some early examples of on-demand companies. You had this subtly changing consumer behavior of, I want to push a button on my phone and have something happen in the real world. And that was kind of the interesting part for me. It was, how can we deliver products from people, from local stores near people when they press a button on their phone or click a button on their computer? And let's start with groceries and then let's see where this takes us. And, you know, in the past eight and a half years, we've really stayed focused on groceries because, you know, it's such a large market and it's so underserved. Why was it important not to own the inventory or to own the trucks? You know, Keith always talks about, Keith Boy always talks about vertically integrating. So talk about that. Our business is different than a vertically integrated grocer because we don't own the inventory. It allows us to scale in a, you know, in an asset light way. And, and it allows us to partner with the grocers and other partners that are excellent at what they do and to not replicate a grocery product supply chain that is actually somewhat efficient in, in the way that it moves products around the U.S. and stores products near where consumers live. Um, and one thing that grocers are exceptionally good at is locating their stores in the right communities that will buy from them. And so with, with 20,000, 30,000, 40,000 grocery stores in the U.S. located perfectly where, where consumers live, why should we replicate that supply chain by building another warehouse in every city? So we thought that it would be better to partner with grocers and to leverage the existing food supply chain. Um, and it also allows you to do it in an asset light way and to be faster and closer to the average consumer. Talk about where groceries go. Uh, we just traced a little bit the past. Why don't you talk about the future? Well, that's a good question. In the immediate future, I mean, what you're seeing is an acceleration of consumer behavior changes where more and more consumers are interested in having their groceries delivered or picking up their groceries. And due to the pandemic, th this trend sort of accelerated even beyond what we were predicting. It's almost like we entered this year, 2020, at, at kind of 2020 levels and exited the last six or seven months at what we expected would be happening in the year 2025. Grocery delivery seems like a mainstream thing. Instacart's casually mentioned on Family Guy and other pop culture um, places. And, and it's sort of uh, taken for granted. And so I think you'll see a continuation of that trend. More and more people will expect everything, including groceries, to be delivered, to be delivered faster and faster. Um, and for apps like Instacart to replace your trip, not only to the grocery store, but maybe to the whole mall where the grocery store exists. Totally. There, there was this moment where everyone was excited about on-demand everything, right? Not, not, not just grocery delivery, but parking and a person to stand in line for you and and we saw a lot of those startups not work out. Um, I think Sarah Tavel's um, sort of piece on it was that you needed to be 
10x better and cheaper, not not just better or, or cheaper. Uh, did you guys have any perspective on sort of the the wave of on-demand startups that that didn't work out? That's a good question. It's not something I've thought deeply about. I think one of the differences between what we're doing and what some of those other companies did is that we're taking something that every consumer already needs to do every single week, which is do their grocery shopping, something that's ingrained into our, you know, our routines, and we're making it easier and better, and in some cases cheaper. And in some of those other cases, they were kind of nice to have additional products, whereas whereas groceries are something that everybody needs. The other thing I'd say is that groceries is something we've all, we've all grown up with. I mean, I can remember the the grocery store that I shopped at when I was a, when I was a kid with my parents and I can even remember the layout of that grocery store. It's somehow ingrained in our childhoods. And if you ask the average person, they can name off the top of their head, the two or three stores they shop at every week and why they shop there. And I can't do that for some of the other verticals that these on-demand companies um, targeted the, either the frequency isn't there or the frequency's there, like for instance, shipping something or going to the post office, but it's just not something I care that much about. It's not something I think about every day. Mike, uh, when you talk about, you know, what's worked and wh- what hasn't worked and how you sort of traced, traced the space over the last few years. Yeah. Well, one of the things I was going to comment on when, when Max was speaking that I think is interesting right now, and this is not a fully formulated thought, but like I spend a lot of my time in B2B marketplaces and a lot of my time around um, e-commerce like infrastructure. And I think part of what we're seeing, I mean, everyone now has thrown up the, the e-commerce penetration curve and, and has shown how much it's accelerated, basically has also skipped like, you know, five, even 10 years um, during during COVID going from 14% penetration up to like 30% of total retail. And, you know, if... If you believe um, in that trend for e-commerce, then the the role of the the physical store look, looks much different. And I think that parallel probably applies to grocery as well. In that, I, I personally believe um, that you know this has been a forcing function where people do experience a new way of shopping um, uh, and has you know penetrated deeper into a segment that you know might not otherwise have gone out and, you know, bought their groceries online. And, uh, and I, per- I personally think that's going to stick. And so, you know, when you look at everything else around the, uh, the ecosystem that will need to change as a result of this move to online, I think there's going to be interesting stuff that pops up like as I guess I would call it second order effects of this, of this shift to, you know, online adoption of grocery. And I think Vori could be a good example of how, you know, the, overall supply chain needs to modernize around this as well. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I don't, we, we were talking a little bit about, um, about, you know, dark stores and I guess like micro fulfillment centers. I mean, and one of the differences in, uh, between grocery and, and a lot of the rest of e-commerce is the fact that it's, you know, due to perishables, you actually need to have locations live a lot closer to their, you know, ultimate source of demand. And so, so, that is just different implications when you think about store network, but I'm not answering Eric's question in this. I guess I'm just like you've uh, Max's Max's point and just triggered some reflections on, I guess what the physical network needs to look like in a world where, you know, groceries 50% online penetrated versus, you know, versus 10. And, uh, and I guess how the role of Vorin and Instacart kind of uh, play in, in that, in that world. So I guess I'm flipping it as a question back to you guys. You know, you look at the average grocery store and a lot of the square footage of the store is dedicated to 
preparing food that they then sell at that store. Or even if you look at the larger stores, if they have the volume, they're preparing a lot of the food they sell in the store at other centralized locations. So grocers are no strangers to using their infrastructure to modify their businesses as, as consumers' behavior change or as they see an industry change. And I think this is no different. There'll be um, grocers that are on the forefront of doing things like dark stores, right? Setting up separate locations or areas of their existing locations where e-commerce picking and packing can happen. Um, Instacart will be a big part of that, I think. And I think you'll see the, the layout of the average grocery store will shift over time, right? Maybe it will shift more towards a showcase for products. And there's still that sight and smell and taste that you can only get by, by being in the store. Um, so maybe more of the store will be dedicated to that experience. And then when you actually go to rebuy the products that you buy every single week, you'll do that on Instacart and will be fulfilling from the back, quote, dark area of that store. Yeah, there's some similarities. I think, you know, one of the things you see in, in D2C e-commerce is there has been like a pendulum swing back to prior to COVID back to, you know, physical retail and that as you know, everyone's going and spending on Facebook and Google ads, like digital CAC is actually more expensive than, you know, getting your products into a store and going and acquiring a customer, either wholesale or via your own like physical retail location. Maybe there's some parallels here as well. And that, um, you know, I think, it, I guess in a, in a post COVID world, what retail looks like, I think is generally going to be more experiential um, for, for brands who've actually shifted more online. Um, and there's probably a number of parallels in food too. Like I think, if you if you think about like the beverage display like an Erewhon or or a market like that, you know that that could be a really an interesting source of early trial for brands who you're ultimately you know procuring through a more efficient means like afterwards as a consumer. So yeah, I would, and I, I definitely feel like ultimately as the as the food chain kind of evolves, kind of where we kind of see ourselves sitting is well, there there needs to be an operating system for all of these emerging trends, right? So you, whether there's dark stores, you know, whether folks are buying majority of their groceries, DDC or, you know, Insta, Insta, Instacart is absolutely going to, you know, trans, transform the way people are, you know, getting their groceries. I mean, it's, we're living in like, like Max said, 2025 already, but at the base layer, it's such a fragmented, you know, we're talking about a trillion dollar space with 33,000 different wholesalers, hundreds and hundreds of thousands, not millions of, manufacturers, uh, you know, 40,000 plus, you know, grocery stores proper, but there's 125,000 plus convenience stores, right. And liquor stores and mini marts and bodegas, you know, that's kind of a, a big elephant. It's not all going to die. A lot of people think like, Oh, everything's going to be, uh, you know, a lot of these brick and mortar locations are going to die overnight. And I just don't fundamentally believe that's really true. Um, and so what is going to be the, uh, as we move from, you know, we moved from, you know, phone calls to EDI and EDI to, to maybe fax and fax to what is going to be that base layer that kind of connects a lot, all of these kind of different nodes together. Um, and oddly enough, there's been a, in the past six months or during COVID, the, the inbound interest from, uh, you know, small start, upstart and mature food delivery companies in voice procurement services for their own kind of retail efforts has been interesting. Right. And it's like, oh, so what is the future of what does the future of procurement look like? The supply chain look like as we move towards a more as as the Instacart, for example, and the and the and the Mike Vision become kind of like a reality. Um, it's really exciting to see kind of how that plays out. And I think 
the the why now here is kind of interesting. If you think about, I do, I do believe the grocery industry is really just a series of intergenerational transfers of ownership. So what does that mean? It means, you know, you know, Eric's market uh, was, was owned by Eric. He passes it down to his, his granddaughter, his, his daughter who passes it down to, uh, you know, her son. And, um, and now it's a 10 generation grocery store or a six generation grocery store. Same thing on the, on the other side. Um, in a way, Vori is an intergenerational business, right? Um, where my parents who met themselves fell in love in a grocery store and, you know, gave the inspiration to us to start this company. The newer generations are, you know, the younger generations are going to, um, they're going to demand more modern ways of, of doing business um, and, and meeting, meeting the world where it is in terms of its, you know, especially consumers in terms of consumer behavior. Um, but that underlying supply chain has to catch up. And so that's kind of the, there's a, there's a why now behind this renaissance in the, in the food supply chain. Yeah. I think one of the other, one of the other trends too, that were it's kind of implicit in a lot of what we're talking about, but like the, um, the, the distribution of brands who are selling into grocers is just becoming like, there's a much longer tail now. And I think, you know, whether you call them specialty food producers or, you know, uh, I guess, like I was saying earlier, kind of for lack of a better term, D to C brands that are getting into grocery as well. Um, I think there's just like consumer tastes have become uh, more discerning, more diverse. And that is reflective in, you know, stores, not just being consumed by, you know, um, a few kind of hero brands and their sub brands, like it's actually becoming more, it's becoming much broader and the overhead and actually going and trying to source those, manage all those relationships, et cetera, is just becoming more, um, more significant for, for retailers, um, you know, and for the brands trying to get in those stores. So that's, that's personally something that gets me as, as a lover of, you know, all things food. And, and, uh, and I think there's a lot of passion that goes into entrepreneurs, like in this space. Um, I think that's a great thing. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it, it definitely, as Brandon says, needs to change the OS of these stores too. But Brandon, that we got, or, sorry, um, Eric, we got off your initial question of like what hasn't worked here. I honestly don't like, I don't, you know, I initially, my, my first foray into the startup world was like in the food space. I was working at a, a chef marketplace called Kitchet, um, that kind of attempts to like bring the restaurant to your house. Uh, uh, and the, the idea at the time was per the point on people, you know, entrepreneurs and food, just generally being really passionate people. I, I was super excited by, um, chefs and, you know, them being fundamentally creative people that ultimately had that creativity stifle when they were trying to work their way up the line of like a corporate kitchen. And so like, Kitchen was trying to give them a platform to go and, you know, unleash your creativity. Like we were having uh, wine cooks at like the French laundry doing Wu-Tang themed dinners for people and being able to make more money than they would. And, you know, working a week at, you know, uh, at another restaurant. And so, uh, so that was always a cool thing. And ultimately that business didn't work. I mean, the economics of food were really, really tough. And I, I think if there was, you know, um, ultimately to get that thing to scale, you really needed to, make chefs a commodity and get volume discounts on purchasing food. And so, you know, there's a, maybe we, I was straight a little bit from trying to get into, you know, that part of food, but it's a, it's a broad space. And honestly, I try not to be too anchored by what hasn't worked in the past. Um, Cause I think now it's just really exciting and kind of, kind of different time. So. so, so that's a really interesting example of an asset light food business. And, you know, the average U S consumer thinks about eating 21 meals a week so what, what are the other ways besides groceries and, you know, hot food delivery that people are going to get uh, those meals? So, so I think about 
that that chef, right? The chef that would have been the perfect candidate for Kitchit. What else could they be doing that's interesting? That's that's food marketplace related. There's a company called Chef. SHEF chef that's doing this where chefs can cook at home and, and, and serve food to their neighborhood. There's another food startup named Territory Foods that I think does something similar here where they find local chefs to produce their menu and, and then ship it. I mean, a hub and spoke model. Uh, Mike, do you see, do, do you have a thesis around what other types of food businesses might get built or uh, another pivot on it? What other things chefs could be doing in their spare time that could kind of create value? Hmm. To be honest, I haven't spent as much time thinking about it. I mean, I, I think there are, the companies you named are exciting. And I think, you know, <laughs> there was, there was basically a wave of in the, in the kitchen days. I mean, this was back in uh, 2011, 2012. Like, uh, I think their competitors, kitchen surfing, some of the others all kind of, it was a wave of them going out of business. And Greylock also, you know, we were investors in Sprig, which was more of a, you know, vertically integrated, uh, you know, getting, getting down to the production of food and ultimately delivery of it too. I think part of the problem there was, you know, uh, around demand forecasting and, you know, taking orders in real time, delivering them in real time is more challenging than, I think there's a company now, Private Chef Club, that's taking orders at the beginning of a week. So it's, it's more kind of, you're able to smooth demand more, but I don't have a good answer on the, on the chef side. Like how does a chef better monetize, you know, their, their skills or, or like downtime as well? I mean, chef might be a good example of that, but I think it's a different, a different tier of, uh, I, I don't know if we would, those are people that would uh, traditionally be, call themselves chefs, even if they're really talented cooks. Uh, honestly, I don't have a good answer for that right now. I mean, I think it's a tough time for the industry and kind of in the, as one who's really, you know, interested in, as an investor in this trend towards, you know, infrastructure underlying kind of the shift around delivery. And, um, you know, we talked about dark kitchens. Some It almost runs like antithetical to what I was saying about chefs being just like, creative kind of, you know, folks who really uh, need platforms to unleash that creativity and the restaurant has been, you know, one of many ways to do so. I don't, I don't know, I guess maybe, maybe the industry is becoming bifurcated on that. And uh, hopefully, I really hope there's a world where in-person, you know, uh, creative dining kind of comes back and, but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's an odd time right now for the industry, I must say. From where I sit, it, it looks like because restaurants were closed for so long, people started going back to what they know, right? A lot more cooking we see happening. People are comfort baking, right? I know a good deal of people that made a bunch of bread just for fun during, during um, shelter in place. Um, I think that it's pointed people back toward some of those things and, and we'll see if those stick or not. And then simultaneously, I think that when there's a vaccine and when the world comes a little bit more back to normal, there'll also be a resurgence of, you know, dining out and going back to some of the fun things we used to do together. Um, it'll be really interesting to see how that shakes out. Yeah, I think I think there's almost different jobs to be done for uh, for going out and dining at a restaurant versus, you know, I think if you view food, food as utility, I think there's a lot of really positive, you know, changes happening across the chain right now. I think uh, for me, at least, like this has really illuminated the fact that, uh, you know, there's going out to eat. And, and I think like, you know, the restaurant industry is a form of hospitality more so than like food. And I think food is a vehicle to connect with others around us. Like, I think a lot of the most meaningful conversations I've had in my life have been around the dinner table or while traveling kind of food is a lens in other cultures. And I just think, um, you know, we've been talking about it from the utility standpoint and how to actually, there's a ton of opportunity to improve on that. I think, uh, 
you know, food as hospitality as a form of connection, all that, you know, I, I'm optimistic, but, um, but I, I personally find that part of my life is, is missing right now. So. And Mike, you're a parent, right? I am. Yeah. And, and so am I. And hopefully this is true for you. But when I became a parent, I realized that it was more than just, it was more than just making sure dinner was solved tonight for my wife and I, it's now you want to be able to say you're feeding a healthy and an affordable meal to your family and to your children. And certain meals fit that job to be done and certain meals don't fit that job to be done. So it sort of, it sort of skews your view on meals and particularly dinner. Yeah, completely. And the, the, um, and maybe I'll, I'll eat my words, what I just said, but I think that the value I, um, I put on just like convenience right now and, and also trust that what I'm giving my kids is, <laughs> is healthy, I think is higher than it's, than it's ever been. So, um, so thank you, Instacart. Yeah, you're, you're more than welcome. And thank you for being a customer. And, you know, the other kind of point on that is, is it like healthy is in the eye of the beholder, right? So, you know, you can cook an unhealthy meal, but something about cooking it myself makes me believe that it's going to be high quality. I know exactly what I put into it. Whereas even if, you know, there's plenty of healthy options for takeout, you know, there's something about getting takeout that doesn't fully solve that job to be done where I'm sort of feeling like I'm nourishing my family. So, so cooking, I think will, will, will stick around even after things go back to normal. But I think there will be new services that, that will come about. I hope, I hope somebody starts some that, that really target in that job to be done where a family wants to feed a healthy, affordable meal to their, you know, you know, to their family um, regularly, maybe it's private chef club, right? I'll have to check that out or, or maybe it's something else. Yeah. 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 And, and there's a value that the, uh, you know, the, the nourisher, uh, gets out of that as well. Like the, you know, someone who, who loves cooking for larger groups and doesn't have, you know, might not have the family to do that with. Um, and also, so I, anyway, I, yeah, I plus one, I think it's an interesting space right now. And I, you know, I have not yet made, made investments in it and I, I will keep an eye out as well. There, there was a series of, of food delivery startups that raised a, a lot of money in the last few years, you know, Sprig, Spoon Rocket, and, and, and some of them sort of, or most of them, it seems, d- d- didn't work out. Why do, you, why do you think that was? What, what were the mistakes they made, or why was the white space not as big as people thought? I would ask the question, do they hold inventory or not? And you might find correlation amongst the ones that had trouble with their unit economics to the ones that held inventory. And I think we mentioned it earlier, but food waste is a really expensive cost. Managing supply and demand and, and, and peaks and valleys is really difficult. And it's just a, a more difficult business, I think, to make and sell the food. Yeah. I think the, uh, the other point that I kind of hinted on earlier was um, just around, you know, demand forecasting and the cost of being really adaptable to that demand, um, especially when you're when you're driving around with actually, in the case of Sprig, and I wasn't at Greylock at the time, we, we were investors there. And, and I think it's just a challenging, a challenging model when you're taking orders and promising delivery within a certain, you know, time window, and you actually have that food, and you're needing to take different routes around the city. Like it's just, um, I think, at a certain point with scale, trying to get economics in place, you start to see the quality really take a hit. And I think in a world where you could be where you can better predict demand, um, at the start of a week, um, I think I think those models could look more attractive if you're not needing to adapt to demand in real time. So that's you know that's one thing, but um, that I would just add on to what Max said. Yeah, I do know at, in my uh, in my house, I actually have several HelloFresh users, and it's actually really interesting just seeing uh, 
the meals that come in. I always think about that model on like essentially week over week having to become an expert in like 17 different types of sauces or like different variations of like chicken or seafood um, just on like the, the culinary side. And like, what does it take to do that? Not just like a batch for one person, but for like, you know, 4 million people in any given country and then in different regions. And then also be able to um, distribute that knowing that there's high perishability and then also provide this interesting user experience on the consumer side to be able to order and request their meals for the week. Right. And there's, there's a very interesting tension, like owning the supply. And there's also a conversation to be had around managed marketplaces and like, you know, the more of the supply that you control, the higher, you know, you know, take that you can have in, you know, in, in our space, we do see folks that are trying to become tech enabled distributors of sorts, right. Where they actually have warehouses, but then they do the delivery to retailers. And it just, it does seem, there's, there's always a trade-off between like the value capture on one side of like owning being vertically integrated versus, you know, I think what I would prefer is the asset light and being able to scale more quickly, but being comfortable with potentially a lower take or a, or more of a, a battle or becoming extremely more creative, like Mike was alluding to, you know, creating additional levers of value through financial services or some other means. As an investor, I look at how much behavior change is required for a company to be successful. And if you're a vertically integrated food company that's making your own menu of items, well, you have to teach people by getting them to taste your food in person to like it, right? You have to teach them one dish at a time. And businesses in that generation that you mentioned had to do that from scratch, no pun intended. This generation of food companies, Instacart and the, and the, and the restaurant delivery companies are essentially helping people do something that they already want to do. They've got their hand on their phone and they are looking up the hours of the grocery store or they're looking up the restaurant's menu and then an app an ad for an app pops up and says, we can get this delivered to you in an hour and it's going to be much easier than calling the, calling the grocery store, calling the restaurant or going there yourself. So there's less friction involved. And then also the other difference is that we don't have an opinion on what you buy from the grocery store. We're making the entire grocery store selection available to people, ideally at the same price as the store. And it is their choice to build a basket the way they want to, or in the case of restaurant delivery to order from the whole menu. The previous generation of food companies really could only offer a limited selection at any given time to the consumer. I was a consumer of Sprig when it was around and I thought it was a great service, uh, but there was two or three things available at any given time. Whereas if you opened up a restaurant delivery app at that same time, you might find 40 or 80 or 120 menus of local restaurants. And if you were in the mood for pizza, you could have pizza. And if you were in the mood for sushi, you could have sushi. Whereas the other companies would only be able to offer you three or five or even 10 menu items. I think one of the one of the relevant lessons around this is just the importance of trust and by extension like brand in this world. Like I think I don't want to pick on Sprig. I mean, I think Sprig had it sounds like with Max, they had built some strong trust, but like as soon as quality starts to degrade, you know, it's pretty easy to lose that. I think there's a similar dynamic in you know, we spent some time talking about dark kitchens, uh, you know, on a, pre- on a previous call and uh, related to like restaurants. And I think, I think the models there that are more interesting are ones who are actually taking restaurant concepts that have some pre-existing brand affinity, say that they have some footprint in, you know, the East Bay that are looking to expand into San Francisco and are able to kind of use more of an asset light kind of existing kitchen network to go and test that concept and transfer some of that brand affinity 
versus needing to go like open a new restaurant. I actually think that's a, that's a pretty interesting way to like, you know, take brand equity you've built and go and capitalize on that versus I think models who are going and trying to spin up a new restaurant concept and all the kind of, you know, customer loyalty, customer acquisition, um, brand building that goes alongside that and do that from scratch, potentially long-term you're in a position to better own the economics. But I think one lesson, uh, at least that I found from spending some time around that side of things is that uh, it's increasingly expensive to go and like, you know, build a brand around restaurant concepts. And it's, it's not just about, you know, the food and ultimate quality that you're delivering. Like there is some, there's an emotional, you know, connection that we all have to brands as well. And, and nowadays, especially like, I think as, as Uber and DoorDash launch, you know, their own ads products, the tax and actually getting distribution on those, on those apps is going to become more expensive. The other side of that coin is it could help, you know, it can, it could help brands who are confident to go and, you know, get distribution faster. But I think, you know, you know, any way you cut it, the tax is going to increase. And so better to start with some brand, some brand loyalty, um, then, you know, then need to build it from scratch. And I think in today's world, it's going to become more expensive to do so from scratch. Yeah, I'm thinking about the, uh, some of the, the, the future founders or, or aspiring founders or current founders that are very early stage that are thinking that are listening to this might actually, I don't know if now or later in this discussion might be good to pull into even just like the stories of, you know, um, you know, Mike, what you've seen, you know, coaching and, and molding these early stage founders, you know, Max, like what, what were some of the things that you had to overcome in the, you know, zero to one phase that were interesting? I'm happy to also tell some stories from Bori um, that might be relevant to the, the young founders in the audience. Let's, uh, l- let's do it. I'll actually start with you. W- one question I'm curious to get your perspective on is, is, is the doing things that don't scale. Of course, there's the famous P- Paul Graham advice, but at the same time, you're also trying to build something that does scale. So any, any stories of doing something, the, doing things that don't scale or any frameworks for thinking about, you know, this is the right amount versus, versus not the right amount, uh, et cetera. You know, I think we, we, we really, we, we basically have do things that don't scale written on like the walls of our house at this point, um, because it is essentially been all only that, um, up until, you know, just very recently, <sighs> when I think about our customer, you have to understand our customers are either a, over 65 years old, B, non-English speaking, because, um, you know, a lot of essential workers and the folks who actually keep the food industry running are, for example, immigrants or they're, you know, especially Latino or from specifically Mexico. And this is their, you know, the only job that they can get is as an order clerk at a specific store or, or three, you know, or C, folks who don't have college degrees or are not software engineers. These are folks who, you know, graduated high school and became a, a you know, a checker or, 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 or a cart collector and then work their way up through the grocery store and into management. And in building technology for these people, you really, really, and going back to the earlier point that, you know, Max made about doing things that people already do, you know, for our customers, it's like, how do you meet them where they are? So for the first, for the first like three months since, you know, after launch, whenever a customer would place an order, in fact, we, 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 we would be there for every single order for the you know first few orders of our early customers to go there and show them how do you actually scan this gallon of clover milk and then how do you put that in your cart right imagine going and teaching all of your consumers how to use your you know your app right we went in hand like super superhuman style onboarding and training for every single of our retail customers to make sure that they really understood a how to use the app but also that we care you know 
that was like really important to know that, Hey, we weren't just some young, young kids from tech coming in to do something crazy. We actually really wanted to help their business. So that was, you know, walking them through the training is one aspect. Another aspect is, you know, we, as a function of building trust, we had to make sure that there was never a failed order. Or if there was, there was extreme, you know, super heroic tactics used to like uh, make it up to them. So there's a couple of instances that come to mind is, you know, for, you know, Robert's market in Portola Valley was, uh, I think they tried to place a, a dairy order. And for some reason they ordered in, you know, uh, cases as opposed to eaches, which means they got maybe four or eight times as much dairy as they're supposed to get for that load. And what we did as a team said, you know, we got to make it up to Mike, Mike Kirk, you know, the order clerk there, the store director. And we know that he loves like heavy metal. Um, and like, you know, like, like classic rock and a bunch of different genres. And we actually got him kiss tickets. It's one of his favorite bands. And, um, we got, they were happened to be playing like, I don't know, it was sometime before COVID hit. So like in March, I got my, my girlfriend, Jory, she like designed like a, you know, a custom ticket with his name on it as representation of like the virtual ticket. And we delivered it in like a Vori box. And he was like, wow, you guys really care. Um, it's all good, you know? And, you know, another case that was actually not our fault, you know, a distributor failed to deliver some milk to one of our grocery stores, the market at Edgewood in Palo Alto. And, you know, it's a big deal if milk doesn't make it to the receiving dock. That means that there's going to be a shortage of, you know, cereal in the community <laughs> that, uh, that, you know, there's, you know, an Instacart shopper goes in to get a, get a gallon of 2% and it may be shorted. Right. So if we don't want that to happen, we actually bought. I know it had to have been, you know, 200 to 250 gallons of milk threw it in uh, from some, some other location, uh, threw it in our, uh, in our SUV and drove it to the, um, drove it to the store. Um, and it, it got there at the time that they were, would have expected their, their uh, wholesale order. And we just comped it, said, Hey, here you go. You know, these are kind of the things that we had to do to stir that, to kind of crank that cycle and start pushing that boulder up, uphill to get to that tipping point. And developing user trust, um, developing, uh, like building reten- um, user understanding of how to use our software, ultimately ladder up to retention, which for us is well over 90% over any 60 day um, period for, 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 for new cohorts of retailers. But yeah, do things that don't scale. You know, we took a lot from the Brian Chesky example of taking photographs um, of, of early users and our users definitely need that level of, uh, of love and care, but it really pays off in the end. We, we did a bunch of things that didn't scale as well, Brandon, um, in the early days when we needed to build the catalog of groceries that came from a store that we wanted to offer to our customers. The store often wouldn't give us the catalog or didn't have the catalog to give to us. And so we would go into the store and take a picture of every single item. And in some cases, we would buy one of every single item, take it back to our office and take pictures of it there. So we became really good at taking pictures of, of groceries. Mm-hmm. Another uh, fun example of things that don't scale, YC would often cater their demo days using Instacart. And so some shopper would get the order for like 200 bottles of soda that Jessica Livingston had just placed and would call and would say, hey, I can't do this. I can't do this order on my own. You know, and we would try to help have another shopper help. And sometimes we would go help. I I remember there was an order for a hackathon in San Francisco and the order was for like $1,200 worth of Costco items, including 40 boxes of bags of chips and a bunch of other stuff. And 
we saw this order come through because I mean, a $1,200 order even now, but even especially back then was very exceptional. So we saw this order came in and both my co-founder, Brandon and I, we were like, well, the shopper obviously won't be able to do this on their own. Let's go on over to Costco. We left our office. We went down to the Costco in San Francisco. The two of us helped the shopper find the items, purchase the items because it was way over the limit of their Instacart credit card. And the three of us in three separate cars drove this giant order over to this hackathon, gave the products to them, and, and then brought them a bunch of Instacart stickers so that they could promote us to their to their members. And then we went back to the office and finished our, our day into the night. And it's funny because if you're, if you're a founder and you're starting a social network or something and something breaks, well, somebody's newsfeed doesn't load and you probably never get a call about it. But if you're founding a company where people are depending on your product and it's in the real world, like in your case or in Instacart's case, you, you, you end up having to put 400 gallons of milk in your car. You know, it's like a totally different world. Yeah, Brandon, on, on your example, um, I think it's a, it's especially important for these industries where, you know, they're typically built on human relationships, like, you know, whatever grocery store has their, you know, the milk person that they just call on the phone to go and deal with. I think like it is, uh, I think, super important to be there in person and actually build that same level of trust as a tech company, even if that's not the way it scales. Um, and I think, you know, I guess from a from a growth framework, the way I think about it is just like, you know, really prioritizing, you know, retention and getting that right um, before kind of, you know, moving upper upper funnel. It's kind of, I guess, the parallel I have from from my experience was at Stitch Fix. Um, you know, we scaled quite far without having spent a dollar on marketing, um, largely because it was a concept that, you know, we just really struck strong product market fit with the right user who was underserved. I mean, we had competitors that were focused on men on the coast. Um, Stitch Fix was focused on, you know, women, typically late 30s, early 40s in the Midwest at, at the time who just like really spread really strong word of mouth about the concept. And, you know, it helped out with the model. There was a there was a human component and the stylist was ultimately like, you know, styling you and sending you a note and sending you your clothes. But in the early days, I mean, Katrina used to do this personally. Um, and then that expanded to a network of stylists. And then over time, there's more kind of, you know, algorithms doing it. But yeah, I think I would just underscore like the importance, even if it feels like building, you know, strong customer love and really high MPS, however you measure it, like won't scale. That's ultimately the most impactful thing you could do. <laughs> you could do for growth in the long term. So I, I want to segue back to our, our grocery conversation when Amazon bought Whole Foods a few years ago, there were all these predictions of things that were going to change. And Amazon did their own sort of, you know, experiments with their self-checkout stores. Maybe you all can elucidate what, what were the predictions or expectations um, that that move had. And what have we seen uh, since then? And, and what can we expect to see going forward? So the day that this happened, I think we all found out about it pretty early in the morning. And I remember being in bed and, and looking at my phone and, and I had gotten a bunch of text messages about it pretty early in the morning. And that morning, my wife and I were supposed to tour a hospital because we were thought to give birth to our first kid. And I said to my wife, like, we're gonna have to reschedule this tour. Like it's, it's wartime today. We, we got into the office and I think pretty early in the day, it was clear that this was going to be net positive for Instacart and helped put together in all hands, I think by about 11 AM or noon, we were talking to the whole company about it, reassuring folks that, you know, we were on top of it and sort of taking a stab at what the next few months were going to look like for us as a result. Fast forward to today, I think in retrospect, what you can see is that 
Amazon's always been really interested in this market among all the other things they're doing. And it's just an acceleration of that. If you're a grocer and you were sort of on the fence about coming online, well, this was just a moment in time where you had to suddenly pay attention and your board was asking you, hey, what's your strategy here? And so it would help accelerate an existing trend of, of grocers wanting to come online and wanting to do that in a way that was fast and easy, which is exactly what Instacart offers them. I think from from our 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 vantage point where we sit, you know, we walk into it, it, it actually created kind of a two side, at least two different effects that we observed. Um, well, obviously, this happened before we, we got started, but that we observe now. We go into these stores and especially these local and independent stores, right? I think a lot of, there's going to be a, I think there is a, a moment for local, right? Right now, getting everything that's going on. And these local retailers are really thinking, hey, like how do we actually compete with not just Whole Foods, but now Whole Foods is backed and owned by Amazon, right? And in this, in this, in this age where, you know, Amazon is a multi-trillion dollar company and, and owns, you know, the probably the flagship, the, 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 the best brand in grocery and, and food retail, right? These stores are like, all right, so how do we compete? What do we do? And it creates a lane for how do you take the technology that Whole Foods has and give it to the rest of the, you know, or at least the, the $100 billion long tail of, of, of retail that, is, that does not have Amazon to support them in terms of technological infrastructure, and then you turn around and then on the other side of the coin, you, we talk to these suppliers that run honest, you know, 15 to 25 to 100, you know, million dollar a year businesses distributing various foods, kettle chips and, um, you know, various, you know, Ghirardelli chocolates and, um, you know, you name it, meat, milk. And they're like, well, you know, Whole Foods number one supplier is UNFI, United Natural Foods. Um, and they have their own technology and they have a lot of infrastructure to be able to distribute food at scale. But all of these, the, the rest of the, you know, they're, they're 17% of the market. The rest of, you know, the, the 83% of the market for the most part is under teched. And so then when you look at these regional and local suppliers and you can go to them and say, Hey, we can give you the same technology that UNFI has so you can compete better in the marketplace. So it, it, it definitely adds to the feeling of, of like why now for our customers and it definitely contributes to the why now what we're seeing why you know what we're building actually adds value to the ecosystem yeah brandon especially in covid you know it's very challenging building this type of business or just building a startup in general how have you managed or or, or talk a little bit to to that toughness and how others uh how how you you know work through it and how others uh, like investors on this call uh, in general can be supportive one thing I'm learning on this journey is the importance of, you know, just really strong personal kind of relationships. Still really, I think all of us on the, all of us founders, uh, on my team, Trey and Rob and myself are really thinking about how do we not burn out? I think we have definitely felt extremely exhausted and, and try to negotiate with ourselves. Is this just a natural function of trying to build a successful startup or is there, are there certain nutrients that we're missing, you know, in this process that could help us, um, like, sprint the marathon. Um, I will say starting, you know, Trey is one of my best friends and had known him for half a decade and being able to work with him and live with him has really helps, you know, in terms of knowing each other, knowing each other very well, being able to support each other through this process and Rob as well. We've known him, you know, knew him from Stanford. And I think having that strong basis of friendship um, and brotherhood in a way has really allowed us and buttressed us through 
a lot of the the storm. And I do think a lot of founders, this thing of co-founder dating, and right, and obviously I'm an on deck fellow, so you know we see a lot of, you know, I really do believe as you're doing co-founder dating, you know, thinking about what are your what are your values, like what are your goals, you know, why do you want to start a company? What does it look like to fail together, not just to win together, right? What does it look like to struggle together, to you know, quarantine together? I think these are really important things when you think about, co- um, you know, evaluating co-founders. But I will say that, you know, my girlfriend has played a very large role too. You know, she just, uh, she uh, took us, she planned an extraordinary trip to Yosemite this past weekend, which I wouldn't have done myself. I would have been, you know, working with her or at my house or something. And I think it was, it was extremely, um, it re-energized the soul. So self-care, the question around what do you do for self-care? It's not, I don't have a robust answer. Um, I think we're learning to walk in that regard, but um, I would love to hear what Mike and Max have in terms of really um, taking that to the next level. Yeah, I think founders often ask me for advice on this and, and, you know, they ask some specific question, like you asked me the other day, Brandon, what do you think of this homepage we're designing? Or what, what are some ideas that you have for us to make our company more successful? I always start with a very basic checklist. And I actually learned this from our pediatrician. We took our, our, you know, our two-week-old baby to our pediatrician, and he didn't examine the baby. He was looking at us as parents, and he was asking us all these questions about our house. Do you have a smoke detector? How do you baby-proof your house? Um, do you live on the second story or the first story? And I asked him, I was like, doctor, why are you not looking at the baby? Why are you asking us all these questions about our life? And his way of getting at the way to keep our, our new baby safe was to ask about the baby's environment. And so it's sort of an interesting metaphor, but if a founder asked me, you know, what's the most successful way to, if a founder asked me, what's the way to make my company most successful? Well, I would start with, how's your relationship with your co-founders? What is, what are your interpersonal relationships like with your friends or your partner? What's your, what's your weekly routine? Are you, are you keeping up with exercising three times a week or whatever else keeps you sane? Um, and so I think, there's a lot of advice on specific things on what to do in a business, but I think you have to kind of start with fundamentals. And if you feel lonely as a founder, you're doing something wrong. You're not reaching out enough to your co-founders or your team or your support network, or maybe you haven't built a group of peers at the same stage as you to, to, to learn from. Um, so you should work on fixing that before you even do anything with your business. Well, we must have the same pediatrician, Max. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's um, yeah. I mean, I think, uh, and I just to note, you know, I run large teams. I've never been a founder myself. And I, I would say I've always kind of been a rung below and just have a tremendous empathy for how much founders really carry on their shoulders. And I guess, you know, in founders that I work with, I would totally agree with everything that Max said on just looking out for ones like holistic well-being. And I, I would have a different angle on it that, that I have experienced personally, which is, you know, Anytime you're not showing up like 100%, but try to power through it and, and force yourself to appear as such, like the rest of your team sees through that and that, that trickles down. And so I think the important thing that I think, I think many founders, I think rightfully could be, you know, slow to delegate or slow to give themselves a break on something that's like not perfect um, or just operate with such a high sense of urgency, which is part of what makes them so successful. And, you know, just this, this feeling of, you know, being like an owner, acting like an owner across every dimension, again, something that could lead to a lot of success. But if you don't watch out for it, it could really wear you down. And so I think surrounding yourselves with people you trust, but also knowing when the right time is to really like get something off your plate and just, you know, realizing that 
part of running a successful company is to continually hire yourself out of roles that ideally you've done for a little bit yourself, but um, just, you know, um, delegating before might feel comfortable, I think um, is a pattern that I've seen, you know, ring true across a number of founders. But I think, you know, I think something that makes brand in my experience working with branded and so exceptional is just this, this thirst for feedback all the time and just this constant desire to improve. And uh, in general, oftentimes I tell Brandon, like, you know, don't forget to celebrate wins along the way and, uh, and just, you know, ring the gong every once in a while because the company's made a ton of good progress along the way, but there's this, yeah, just this, this steady ongoing desire to just always be better. And I think, you know, hearing feedback without any defensiveness and, you know, always translating things to action and, and, and seeking actually like meaning out of that feedback. If it's not immediately clear, I, th- I think that's a quality that I've seen in Brandon um, as being just exceptional and, 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 you know, a number of other good founders, I think have that, have that as well. So, so yeah, I guess that's all I would add to two, two very good answers from, from founders. <laughs> I would second that Mike Brandon being an exceptional entrepreneur is never shy to ask the question that might open himself up in a vulnerable way to ask the question that he thinks maybe he should know the answer to, but doesn't, and then is able to get the help and advice he needs in that moment. Yeah. And that vulnerability could be so hard when you're standing in front of a company of people that are, you know, looking up to you for some source of security or comfort. Um, it could oftentimes be, uh, you know, founders rightfully might not want to show any of that vulnerability, just keep everyone's cool. But in many ways, like vulnerability could actually create trust. And I think um, I've seen Brandon use it really, really well. Oh, that's very nice. I'm can't, I don't want to cry on the podcast. <laughs> I, I would, I would third that. And that's a, before Brandon starts crying, uh, that, that, that'd be a perfect place to, to wrap. Uh, I'm always using Brian, Brandon. Uh, this has been a wonderful podcast, guys. Uh, I've, I, my guests have been Max Mullen from Instacart, uh, Brandon Hill uh, of Vori, and Mike Dubow of Greylock. Uh, guys, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Good talking to you guys. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you check us out at villageglobal.vc.